This production is brought to you by the University of Edinburgh. Welcome to this, the second in our series of Gifford Lectures for 2008 to 2009. I'm Stuart Brown. I'm Professor of Ecclesiastical History and Deputy Convener of the Gifford Lectureships Committee, and I'll be chairing again this evening. Our Gifford Lecture is Diana Eck, Professor of Comparative Religion and Indian Studies, and Frederick Wortham, Professor of Law and Psychiatry in Society at Harvard University. The theme of her Gifford Lectures is The Age of Pluralism. In Professor Eck's first lecture on globalization and religious pluralism, which she gave us yesterday evening. She explored the new world being shaped since the 1960s by two revolutions. First, the massive migrations of peoples, and second, the spread of new information technologies, especially the internet. And as she demonstrated, encounters with other cultures and other religions have now become pervasive across the globe, and the time of not getting to know each other is over. She set the scene and she defined her terms with great eloquence, and we look forward to her second lecture. I should say that this evening's lecture is being recorded. Professor Eck, could I now invite you to present the second of your Gifford Lectures on the subject of the civic perspective, citizens, nations, and the challenges of religious pluralism. Professor Eck. Thank you, Professor Brown. Citizens, nations and the challenges of religious pluralism. That's a big topic. I'll try to address it somewhat adequately, looking at a number of contexts of citizens, nations, and religious pluralism. In the summer of 2005, I went to Indonesia in connection with the translation of my book, A New Religious America, into Indonesian. It was one of the first translations and it was commissioned by the U.S. State Department because they saw that the issues of religious pluralism explored in the book were also very important in Indonesia and that most of the people in Indonesia had very little idea about the new religious America I was describing, one that by now had included significant and vocal Muslim populations. In Indonesia, the general impression of America was one that we heard last night in the, in the discussion. A Christian America with well-known and well-funded Christian evangelists who filled huge state stadiums even in Jakarta with their rallies. As I arrived in Indonesia, the Ulama Council, the Council of Clergy and Religious Legal Scholars, uh, had just issued a fatwa denouncing pluralism. I don't think it had anything to do with me coming as director of the pluralism project at Harvard University, but it did signal the fact that pluralism had become an important issue in Indonesia. 
Other things fell under this fatwa as well, things that were forbidden, secularism, liberal forms of Islam, interfaith marriage, and interfaith prayer. For me, this made for an intense two weeks and a fascinating two weeks at that of discussion and of public forums. That August, Indonesia was also celebrating 60 years of independence as what many would call a pluralist, multi-religious, multicultural state. While Indonesia is often referred to as the world's largest Islamic uh, nation with the largest Islamic population, it is not a Muslim state. It's rather a state based on the Panchashila, the five basic principles of belief in God, common humanity, the Indonesian nation, democracy, and social justice. Indonesia's motto with these five principles is Bineka Tunggal Ika, unity in diversity. That diversity was fully on display that summer and the first Sunday I was there in the form of a vast and long parade through downtown Jakarta that kicked off a whole year of arts and culture celebrations. The entries in this long parade included dancers and musicians, artists wearing brilliantly hued traditional dress, body paint, feathers, leaves, flowers, representing the multitude of cultures and the music and the dance that are distinctive to all of those islands that are sort of lassoed into the net of the nation of Indonesia. Now, a very short distance from the parade was the large central Istikal Mosque of central Jakarta. And there, the crowds were considerably less colorful on a Sunday. They were not the rainbow crowds of the parade. Men were mostly in white. Women were wearing subdued pastel burkas. But there, too, the crowds were huge. And on that Sunday, Indonesia's own charismatic Islamic televangelist, Abdullah Gimnastiar, was preaching. Outside, there cruised a motorcycle phalanx of members of the Islamic Front, those who are often called the radical hardliners. And during the constitutional debate in Indonesia decades ago, we have to remember there had been a very heated debate over whether to include recognition of Islam and mention of Islamic law in the constitutional framework. And the echoes of that debate still reverberated. And the contrast between the rainbow multicultural parade of Indonesia at its 60th birthday and the Sunday at the mosque was really rather striking. So what did a fatwa prohibiting pluralism, denouncing it to be forbidden, actually mean? The fatwa commission chairman, Maruf Amin, was quoted in the Jakarta Post that Sunday as saying, Pluralism, in that sense, is haram or forbidden under Islamic law because it justifies other religions. He added that people should be allowed to claim that their religion is the true one and that other faiths are simply wrong. However, he stressed that the council accepted the fact that Indonesia was, of course, home to different religions, that their followers could live side by side. Even so, the fatwa made many people uneasy. Siafi Anwar, for example, the founder of the International Center for Islam and Pluralism in Jakarta, received a steady stream of threats and accusations. And Ulil Abshar Abdullah of the Liberal Islamic Network 
saw his name written on the fatwa against liberal interpretations of Islam. And because of the fatwa, the papers, the television stations were filled with discussion and debate. The Independence Day Sunday supplement to the Jakarta Post was called Living Diversity, and it contained a dozen articles on the ongoing struggle to discover what it is that unity in diversity, that motto, really means in Indonesia. One of the lead articles was by the rector of the Islamic University, a state university in Jakarta, Az Azumaria Azra, calling for a rethinking of religious pluralism from the Islamic point of view, taking issue with the Ulama Council. He said we need to look closely at the Quran as a text that establishes the le legitimacy of differences and diversity and pluralism. Of course, he cited the oft-quoted Quranic sources. If God had so willed, he would have made you all one religion, but he's created you into communities, many communities, so that you may know each other, so that you may compete in righteousness. Other articles in that Sunday supplement told stories in devastating detail of communal violence between Muslims and Christians in Sulawesi and Ambon, stories in which neighbors had literally become enemies overnight. So all was not truly well and harmonious. And the editors of the paper entitled their own comment, Pluralism Beyond Unity in Diversity. They wrote, we all need to build the bridges that somehow connect us in spite of our differences. They wrote, if we want to get to go one step beyond unity in diversity, pluralism is the way forward. Now that fatwa flap brought to mind, at least for me, the crucial distinction between religious pluralism as viewed from the standpoint of a particular religious or theological perspective, in this case that of Islam, and the religious pluralism that might be viewed from the standpoint of civic life, in this case the Indonesian constitution. This obvious distinction is one that was all too often blurred in the public discussion, as it is in the United States. In denouncing pluralism, the Ulama Council spoke to the Muslim majority, but not really to the constitutional issues of Indonesia's state. Indonesia had made that distinction after all, and could they hold on to it? However, in Indonesia, the Muslim majority is huge, more than 80%, and it still holds a strong, presumptive, normative consciousness among the people, the kind that majorities usually have. And in rural parts of the country, there was what Siafi Anwar called a creeping Islamization. And the distinction between the civic and the religious was perhaps not made at all. Indonesia's story of pluralism is an interesting one, and I hope there are people here who know more about it than I do, because I would love to hear from you. But the anthropologist Robert Hefner has recently written a book called Civil Islam, and he traces the complex ways in which Muslim thinkers in today's Indonesia have drawn upon the multiplicity of their own archipelago of islands and multiplicity of cultures, rather than turning to the shimmering ideal of an Islamic state in the abstract. Indonesia today is, he says, witness to a remarkable effort to recover and amplify a Muslim and Indonesian culture of tolerance, equality, and civility. This is what he means by civil Islam. 
He describes it as a, as a middle path between the bullying of the Islamic State and the complete privatization of religion. It's a kind of public Islam, and it makes sense because they understood Islam to be compatible with or even founded on democratic values. And while there are some, like the Ulama Council, who appeal to a kind of Muslim exclusivity, most Muslims, Hefner argues, have learned that they can make their understanding of God's commands more relevant when they relate them to an ecumenical interpretation of Indonesian history and culture. And among those who have made this kind of case for pluralism within Islam are revered thinkers like Abdul Rahman Wahid, well known as Gustur, and the founder of one of the great Islamic parties and organizations in Indonesia, also a defender of minority groups, particularly the Indonesian Chinese and Christians and other groups, and Ulil Abshar Abdullah, a former chairman of the Liberal Islam Network, an example of the next generation that learned from Abdul Rahman Wahid, and people like Nurkulish Majdi, or who is called Chak Noor in Indonesia, also known for his commitment to pluralism. Major public figures who have begun to craft something that looks like civil Islam. So as I begin tonight, let's hold that big chapter before us, uh, thinking about civil Islam, the presence of Islam in public life, but in a non-Islamic state in which Muslim constructions of Islam make room for the voices of other Indonesians, what we might call a civil religion based on Islam in Indonesia. Religious difference in the context of modern nations. This is a real question, and this is our question tonight. The nation is certainly one of the primary sites for the encounter of religious difference today. What constitutes a sense of national belonging? What kinds of nations do we have as we look around the world? Certainly we have some nations that are almost arbitrary and that came into being in the wake of empire, their borders drawn in ways that have been problematic ever since. And some nations have a deep sense of belonging and identity that's rooted in many, in many centuries of common history. Theorists who ask the question, what is a nation, have sometimes said that a nation is a group that shares a common culture and language. And we certainly can understand that definition of a nation in a narrow sense, coming from the American West in Montana, the Blackfeet or the Navajo Indians of America refer to themselves as nations, and rightly so in this narrower sense. They share a common language and culture. And so did the French, for example, until virtually the day before yesterday. Benedict Anderson, in his uh, very well-known book, wrote of the nation as a, quote, imagined community, a community that may not be based on face-to-face -face encounter between one another, but that lives in a sense of comradeship in the imagination of the group. We imagine all of ourselves as Scots or British or increasingly as Americans, though there are a lot of Americans who have trouble with that imagination. Ernest Gellner added another definition. He spoke of the nation as, a, as that basic social bond that seeks to, quote, make culture and polity congruent, to endow a culture with its own political roof, and not more than one roof at that, he says. 
But as we look at the world today, we can see that there are problems here. What about all those nations that just decades ago imagined their community of belongers along far more unitary lines than are today the case? We have these de facto on the ground, multi-religious, multicultural nations. And this is a fact on the ground that does not all, re all, all naturally correspond sometimes to the political roof. So consider France or the Netherlands or the UK. Do we imagine the nation anew with all of its new people? What does it mean to be French or British or Dutch? And what about all the nations that have long been multicultural and yet today are trying to live under one political roof, a new political roof? How are they doing? No wonder pluralism has been such a vexing issue to nation states. And no wonder so many of them are undergoing a kind of collective identity crisis as they reimagine themselves in the 21st century. I speak of this as the age of pluralism, not because these issues have been resolved, because they really haven't, but they're important issues on the agenda for nations throughout the, the world. And the ground rules laid down by constitutions and laws are different in the US, in the UK, in France, Indonesia, Malaysia, India. What I sometimes think of as regimes of pluralism that characterize our various nations are different. And so they must be. The underlying historical and cultural character and heritage on which the ground rules have been laid down are also different. They might be basically Christian or Muslim or Hindu. But the struggle to work out ways of living with religious difference is on the agenda all around. But I think we realize that pluralism is itself plural in the ways in which it's worked out in societies. Now, just glancing at two regimes of pluralism in Europe, and it is just a glance. Britain, of course, does have an established church. And this is perhaps what has made it more accommodating of religious diversity. But gone are the days when Parson Thwackham and Fielding's Tom Jones could insist, when I mention religion, I mean the Christian religion, and not only the Christian religion, but the Protestant religion, and not only the Protestant religion, but the Church of England. That was religion, and yet today, 8.5% of the population of the city of London are self-identified as Muslims. And today, the queen slips off her shoes at the door of an official visit to a Hindu temple in Neesden. And today, Prince Charles indicates that he would rather like to have a multi-religious service at his coronation, though the Archbishop of Canterbury is not so sure. I don't know whether the royal family are the cultural pace setters here, I can't say. But to the outsider, it seems that here we find a generally accepted, though still controversial, multiculturalism. There is no fuss in England if a Sikh policeman wears a turban, for example. Teachers and students alike may wear hijab in schools. The deeper issues of fear, of mutual ignorance and apprehension, and the sporadic violence, some, some of it searing, certainly do exist. But as a former empire, Britain, at least to me, seems to have managed difference fairly well over time. And I look forward to your comments on this as well.
But in France, just to hop away, the ardent ethos of secularism, laïcité, insists that public space be religiously neutral and free of any religious expression. It would be unthinkable, for example, to have public official prayers of any religion in France. The Republican ideal under, underlies a set of common values as a foundation for public life, liberty, equality, fraternité. The French are free to have deep religious commitments if they so choose, but the particular values of a religious tradition are not to be manifest in public, only in the private sphere. And manifest is the key word. As is well known, the headscarf issue became contentious with the presence of increasing numbers of North African Muslims, and the wearing of the headscarf in public schools became a very major issue. This seems to be, in fact, the particular symbolic issue around which France has waged its identity crisis, though it came to stand for all the social issues that have emerged with a large Muslim minority. Second-generation Muslims born and raised in France, speaking France, French as their first language, affirm what they see as their right to wear the headscarf to public schools. One veil, one vote, they say. The Stasi Commission, appointed in 2003 by Jacques Chirac, gathered distinguished scholars among the finest Islamicists in, in France, uh, Mohammed Arkoun and Gilles Keppel, to reflect on, quote, the application of the principle of laïcité in the Republic. And it did reflect on many matters, but the focus was always on the headscarf, which became emblematic of the place of Islam in the Republic of France. Eventually, the, the report recommended prohibiting in public schools what they called ostensible signs, conspicuous signs, such as large crosses, headscarves, kippahs, and turbans. And there were protests actually around the world when this became law in 2004. Even the United States Commission on International Religious Freedom criticized the move, saying the French government's promotion of its understanding of the principle of secularism should not result in the violation of internationally recognized individual rights to the freedom of religion or belief. In France, so very different from Britain, we see the irony of a secular republic with only 11% of its population saying that religion is at all important to them, at the same time preoccupied for well over a decade with the headscarf. In the French-speaking province of Quebec in Canada, there was another high-level commission appointed, and it reached just the opposite conclusion. This consultation on accommodation practices related to cultural differences, as it was called, was chaired, actually co-chaired, by a former Gifford lecturer, Charles Taylor. They held regional forums. They spoke with people about issues of headscarves and kirpans and Sharia law, etc. In the end, they stood firm with an interpretation of Quebec's policy of what they called interculturalism. The ideal is not just multicultural, but rather the interaction of cultures, the overlapping and interpenetration of different Quebec cultures, and their view of a secular and pluralist society was quite the opposite of the French. They said cultural and in particular religious differences need not be confined to the private domain it's healthier to display our differences and get to know those of the other than to deny or marginalize them. 
This then would allow Sikh and Muslim and Jewish students to attend French language schools instead of going to private English language or religious schools. And that would be in the service of integration. Yet another regime of pluralism. Now let me turn for a moment to the United States, always a favorite subject of mine. A very different re regime of pluralism that begins with the non-establishment and the free exercise of religion enshrined in the American Constitution. Virtually a recipe for religious diversity. And today, those who raise their hands to become American, to become citizens, are Hindus and Muslims, Sikhs and Buddhists, as well as ardent secularists and atheists. We have become what our new president, Barack Obama, called a patchwork people in his inaugural address. For we know, he said, that our patchwork heritage is a strength, not a weakness. We are a nation of Christians and Muslims, Jews and Hindus and non-believers. We are shaped by every language and culture drawn from every end of this earth. In the US, I can't imagine the government appointing any high-level commission, including distinguished scholars, to think about religion and public life. There is no state support for religious institutions or no place for uh, a, a government-sponsored commission to examine what that place should be. There is no question whatsoever that a Muslim girl can wear a headscarf to school. And if a teacher tried to send her home for doing so, it would be the teacher who was in trouble and in some cases would be fired. There's been no shortage of debate, however, about these important issues. The US has its own pet controversies. The use of the term under God, for example, in the Pledge of Allegiance that was just added in the 1950s, but both Buddhists and atheists have protested today would their children have to choose between their faith and their patriotism if required to say the pledge in school? And what about Christmas carols and pageants in schools? What about the display of the nativity on public property? What about the request for separate gymnasium hours for Muslim women? All of this has come with our new religious uh, diversity, with our immigration. Of course, religious diversity has always been an American reality. It was there even before the settlers came in the form of the multitude of native peoples with their own life ways. The treatment of native peoples, mostly punitive and negative over time, is the oldest level of America's encounter with the religious other. Those who came across the Atlantic had their own diverse traditions, Protestants, Puritans, Anglicans, Quakers, Dutch, Dutch Reform, Spanish and French Catholics, Sephardic Jews, and even those who had traveled across the ocean to practice their own faith freely were not exactly open to the diversity of religion. Not at all. In Puritan New England, they ran Jews and uh, Catholics and uh, Quakers out of town. They saw freedom of religion as something they cherished for themselves, but they had not yet really seen it as something that would lay the foundation for a broadly free society and form the basis for a wider polity in which everyone had that freedom. And yet when these colonies became part of a new nation, they did, in the course of the constitutional debate, come to a very different conclusion there was to be no established church. 
there was to be no established religion at all, not even Christianity, broadly conceived. While most of the founding fathers were Christian, they deliberately created public space that would not be dominated by their own faith or by any other. God is not mentioned in the Constitution, and that is not an oversight. In debates about religious establishment, the likes of Jefferson and Madison argued against state support for religion and did so, interestingly, in rather theological language and out of religious conviction. God has created the mind free, so it is antithetical to faith to be coercive in matters of conscience. In his 1785 memorial and remonstrance, James Madison argued that the state is simply not a competent judge of religion, of religious truth, has no business interfering in those matters. Quote, while we assert for ourselves a freedom to embrace, profess, and observe the religion we believe to be of divine origin, we cannot deny an equal freedom to those whose minds have not yet yielded to the evidence that has convinced us. In principle, this had to mean freedom for every religion. And Thomas Jefferson argued that religious freedom, quote, meant to comprehend within the mantle of its protection the Jew and the Gentile, the Christian and the Mohammedan, the Hindu, double O, and infidel of every denomination. Now, I don't think these founders had any idea how much the world would change in quite the ways it has over the last two centuries. But the framework they created has been a very sturdy guide. While it is true that 80% of the Christian majority in America might flex its strength in elections, it's also true that the Constitution and its guarantees are not a matter of majority rule or of numbers. For the Constitution and the Bill of Rights and the Courts of Justice are framed precisely to protect the welfare of the smallest of minorities, even and perhaps especially people who do not win elections. So having no established religion and making religious communities totally voluntary, no state support, all of this gave rise to a kind of entrepreneurial religious energy that produced American denominationalism with its dozens of forms of Baptists and Presbyterians and all the energies that religious freedom unleashed in the U.S. astonished Tocqueville, of course, when he traveled in America in the early 19th century. He observed that while in France, religion and freedom seemed to march in opposite directions, in the U.S., religion and freedom seemed to march in the same direction. The more freedom, the more religion there seemed to be. There were some very, very rough roads along that marching path, of course. Even though the Constitution begins, we the people of the United States of America, it didn't really include all the we's that uh, we think of today, to be sure. Uh, at first, it was we free white men. Eventually, black slaves were included, freed slaves. Eventually, Native peoples were included, although the Native American Religious Freedom Act was not passed until 1978. Did the we include all the Chinese who came to build the railroads and whatnot in the uh, mid-1800s? Nope, they were not eligible for citizenship as Asiatics. Neither were the Japanese Shin Buddhists who came in the 1890s 
uh, among the very first from Japan. It did not include the Sikhs who came to work in lumber and farming in the 19-teens. In fact, Bhagat Singh Thind, the turban Sikh who had married an American woman and fought for America during World War I, was in 1923 stripped of his citizenship uh, because he was then deemed ineligible for citizenship as an Asian. Did this we include women? Well, not really as full participants until 1920 when the 19th Amendment gave women the vote. So the we was something we wrestled with and still wrestle with today, that very powerful two-letter word. It's perhaps not well understood that the move to eliminate race-based immigration quotas in America came in tandem with the civil rights movement in the 1960s. 1964, the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act. And then, as Attorney General Robert Kennedy put it, as we are working to remove the vestiges of racism from our public life, we cannot maintain racism as the cornerstone of our immigration laws. And in 1965, then, the Immigration and Nationalities Act opened the door to immigration from Asia. And in the 44 years since then, that American we has become much more religiously complex. At first, the Hindu temple might have been in a former convenience store in Sunnyvale, California, or in a church at the corner of Polk and Pine in Minneapolis, and the Islamic Center in a gymnasium in Oklahoma City, or a transformed bowling alley in Hartford, Connecticut. For years, you could drive right by these places and not really notice them. A two-car garage, one of my favorites in Claremont, California, I was looking really for a Buddhist temple, a Vietnamese community. I went up to the front door, and yes, the Vietnamese monks were there. And yes, it was a temple. It looked like everything else on the street until Sunday came, and they lifted up the two-car garage doors, and there were a whole array of Buddhas and uh, golden images of the Buddhas and the uh, memorial altars of, of the deceased in the garage. But this really was the reality throughout most of the 70s, the 80s, even the 90s, until the big landmark temples and mosques and gurdwaras began to be built. The growth of this diversity has taken place locally, step by step, as I said last night, in a thousand places. But behind every garage door, in the face of every storefront mosque and every church-converted temple, is the story of a community encountering an American neighborhood, bringing something of the place from which it came to the place it now inhabits. And those local stories, those local struggles, are the very things we need to know most urgently in order to assess the wider prospects for pluralism that we in the United States have. In addition to building their own centers, new immigrants also discovered the leverage of religion in American public life, and they began to form the civil advocacy groups that lobby in Washington, their own organizational infrastructure, the Muslim Public Affairs Council, the Council on American-Islamic Relations, the Hindu American Foundation, the Sikh Coalition, all find a place now alongside advocacy groups 
like the National Council of Churches or the National Association of Evangelicals or the Anti-Defamation League. And many of our struggles take place precisely at these collision points where those from whom, for whom America is still a Christian country and those who are participants now in a complex multi-religious country where those collisions take place. The advocates of a Christian America have made the display of the Ten Commandments, for example, one of the symbolic issues on which the battles of pluralism have been fought. A few years ago, when Judge Roy Moore in Birmingham, Alabama, placed a two-and-a-half-ton monument inscribing the Ten Commandments in his federal courthouse, he said, it's about the acknowledgement of the God upon whom this nation and our laws are founded. It's time for Christians to take a stand. We need to reclaim our biblical heritage. And his supporters marched to the courthouse to stand with him until that day when, by order of his superiors in the court system, the monument was removed, and so eventually was Judge Moore. But let me say a bit more about these Ten Commandments cases. It must be a very puzzling thing for people elsewhere in the world to see the way in which the United States Supreme Court is constantly wrestling with where or where we cannot display the Ten Commandments. They're not all the same. But let me talk about one case involving Texas, which has an interesting twist. That was 19, uh, 2005. Conservative Christian groups associated them with the with themselves, with the supporters of a six-foot-high monument that had for four decades stood right by the state capitol in Texas. While other Christian groups, as well as Jewish and interfaith and civil liberties groups, filed briefs urging the court to strike down this public display. One brief in particular, however, signaled the participatory engagement of new Americans, and that was a friend of the court brief submitted by Hindus, Jains, and Buddhists in the United States. The Hindu American Foundation, one of the uh, submitters. The brief cites the growth of Hindu, Jain, and Buddhist communities in Texas over the recent decades. It notes that the lower court, in upholding the constitutionality of the monument, had argued that no one had contested its presence for four, 40 years. The Hindus pointed out that America had changed in these 40 years, and the reality of Hindu, Jain, and Buddhists were part of that change. They noted that the first major Hindu temple in the U.S. was built only in the late 1970s, and that today Texas alone had 40 Hindu temples. Astonishingly, the district court that first heard the case and upheld its constitutionality began its opinion with an 1892 quotation from Rudyard Kipling. Ship me somewhere east of Suez, where the best is like the worst, where there ain't no Ten Commandments, and a man can raise a thirst. I can't believe they wrote this. Hindu, Jain, and Buddhist friends of the court may well have been deeply affronted by the use of these images of their cultures east of Suez, but in the brief, they turned these words of insult into their own purposes. They wrote, the district court failed to recognize that the world is smaller now, that there are many people in the Western District of Texas and millions in the United States for whom there ain't no Ten Commandments. 
The district court also failed to recognize that allowing the Ten Commandments monument to stand on the te Texas Capitol grounds affects those people in ways that the majority for whom the Ten Commandments are powerful or at least inoffensive symbols of religious faith will never experience. The Hindus and Buddhists and Jains also contested that these are non-sectarian. They said they were very much in agreement with the ethical tenor of the Ten Commandments and they respect them. However, the source of the commandments, this exclusive view of God, the repudiation of the imaging of God, the prescription of a particular Sabbath, all of them run against the grain of Hindu theologies. And as for Buddhists and Jains, the very conception of a creator God who ordains commandments as a king might hand down rules for his subjects is not only alien, but seen as an obstacle to enlightenment. The document states, the primary effect of this monument is to put the weight of the state behind an image underscoring the otherness of the friends of the court. Now let me say something about civil religion. By design, Christianity is not an established religion in America, but there has long been something that Robert Bella spoke of as civil religion, a religion that recognizes a ceremonial place in American culture, a place for something like, quote, the American creed that does have some general sentiments about God. In God we trust, our motto, printed on our currency, carried in our pockets, it often surprises non-Americans that we who recognize no religious establishment routinely have prayers at the inauguration of a new president, invocations at the outset of sessions of the Congress, state legislatures, and city council meetings. Increasingly, those invocations are offered by people of many faiths, and those are huge controversies at times. The first time a Hindu offers a prayer in the U.S. Senate, for example, it was interrupted by Christian fundamentalists from the balcony uh, pleading that God would forgive the United States of America for this outrage. Uh, the first time Wiccans, for example, are asked to be included in the prayers at the county commission meeting uh, becomes a huge uh, uh, outroar and public controversy. In any case, we do have these prayers and they are invocations increasingly offered by people of many faiths. In the last 15 years, uh, Hindus, Sikhs, and others have offered prayers in the U.S. Congress. The President of the United States has hosted an iftar in, for Muslims during the month of Ramadan, a seder at Passover. The governor of Arizona has issued uh, congratulatory proclamations on the occasion of the Buddha's birthday or the mayor of Houston might greet Hindus on Diwali. So what is this? This is, in a sense, an expansion of what we call civil religion, a public form of religious expression that exists, as Bella puts it, alongside of and rather clearly differentiated from Christianity, but with certain common elements of a religious orientation that the great majority of Americans share. They've played a crucial role in the development of American institutions 
and still provide, as he says, a religious dimension for the whole fabric of American life, including the political sphere. Bella looks especially at the use of God language in presidential inaugurations, in major speeches, and it does not have specifically Christian references, ever. In this rhetorical tradition, it is a mention of God, but a, but a very general mention of God. And as Bella put it, it seems unlikely that this lack of Christian reference was meant to spare the feelings of a tiny Christian, non-Christian minority. But rather, the civil religion expressed what those who set the precedents felt was appropriate under the circumstances. It reflected their private as well as their public views. Now, Bella wrote that essay at a time in 1967 when the religious impact of America's new immigration had not yet become evident. But here it is, important in a whole new way for today, that many of the newest immigrants, like the Hindus and Buddhists and Muslims of Texas, embrace America's civil religion, a general sense of the divine, of prophecy, of purpose, of judge justice. And they do everyone a favor by making clear that that civil religion is not just Christianity written in a different script. Now let me turn for a final moment to India. Here too there is a different regime of pluralism. If there is a kind of civil religion that still has its hold in the United States, that has its grounding in Christianity but is not Christianity, if there is a kind of civil Islam which we can see some evidence of in Indonesia, what about India? Is there a civil religion there? Perhaps a civil Indic ethos that provides yet another ground on which a pluralist society can flourish? Historically, of course, pluralism, religious diversity, has been a long salient fact of India's culture. It's an old multi-religious subcontinent with Hindus and Jains and Buddhists and later Muslims and Sikhs and British Christians with tribal and regional cultures shaped by 14 major language groups. The keynote of manyness is profound in India. Many gods, many manifestations of the gods, many forms of a single god, deep cultural themes of unity at the same time, unity in the midst of difference. And that provides yet another idiom for thinking of religious pluralism, a Hindu idiom by and large, informed by the persistent resonance of a theme as old as the Vedas. Ekam sat vipraha bahuda vedanti. Truth is one, but even the wise speak of it in many ways. The constitution of independent India, forged in the years after independence and forged in the fires of terrible communal violence between Hindu and Muslim, began as does the American Constitution with the word we. We, the people of India, having solemnly resolved to constitute India into a sovereign, socialist, secular, democratic republic. Hum Bharat ke log, they say. That we, hum, is inevitably complex. India may well be a Hindu majority nation, but it is built upon a complex and old civilization where that we is constantly rediscovered and redefined. Now, 
In independent India, which they call the secular state, they do not have the heritage of the religious wars of Europe that so haunted the founding fathers of the United States. They saw in Europe the specter of a church meddling in the affairs of state and state meddling in the affairs of the church. And this led to a notion of secularism that had to do with a wall of separation, as Jefferson called it, between religion and the state. But in India, this was not the problem. There was no church to separate off from the state sphere, institutionally speaking. What was a problem was the coexistence of so many religions. And the notion of secularism that developed is one of the equidistance of the state from all religions, in which no religion is favored. All religious traditions have a place. The language they use to describe secular is, well, it's several. They, they use the term pantha nirpeksha or dharma nirpeksha, which means non-preference, nirpeksha, for any religious community or any dharma, for any religion. Or put another way, slightly more positive than non-preference, it was the equal respect or regard for all religions, sarva dharma samabhava. Indeed, as many would say, in India, secularism is pluralism. And many of the, the thinkers of India today, people like T.N. Madan and Ashish Nandi and Vinadas, have talked in this language about the way in which religious pluralism and secularism are really two sides of the same coin in India. When the political scientist Donald Eugene Smith studied Indian secularism in the decade following independence, he found it to be deeply informed by this Hindu ethos. When questioned about the Hindu, about the basis, the theoretical basis of the Indian secular state, he wrote, a large majority of Indian leaders of all persuasions will immediately relate it to Hindu traditions of tolerance. And sometimes I wonder whether the more the leaders of the Indian independence movement spoke of secularism, including Jawaharlal Nehru, the more it must have sounded to Muslims like a version of Hinduism. The Indian National Congress expressed its commitment to secularism in 1951, saying, it has been the aim in de and declared policy of the Congress since its inception to establish a secular democratic state which, honoring every faith, does not discriminate against any religion or community, gives equal rights and freedom of opportunity to all. So, in India, secularism has the flavor of religious pluralism. And yet, the sobering fact that the we's of India were not all in agreement with this. There were strong contending, uh, dissenting we's. And if we cast our mind back even 100 years ago to the early steps toward representative government in Indian provincial councils, the issue of representation becomes highly political, fueled, to be sure, by the process of British census taking that identified persons by their religious community. In 1906, a Muslim deputation to the Viceroy lobbied for the reservation of seats for Muslims and separate Muslim electorates to vote for them. They won those concessions. And a politics of separation began with the Muslim League formed advocating for Muslims not long after a Hindu Mahasabha forming to advocate for Hindus. And these questions of representation 
in a religiously diverse democracy are questions that not only plagued the process of India's independence movement, but also perplex the emergence today of multi-religious de uh, democratic uh, cultures throughout the world in the 20th century. Uh, think of Iraq, for example. By mid-century, communalism had left the subcontinent in tatters. Indian nationalism began to gain strength, a very specifically Hindu we, and a forefather of this Hindutva, this Hindu-ness movement, M.S. Golwarkar, wrote a powerful treatise in 1939 called We or Our Nationhood Defined, in which he claims a frighteningly exclusive we that has persisted in the Hindutva, Hinduness movement even today. So we might say that today there are really two forms of public rhetoric about the nation and religion in India. One, that India is a Hindu nation with a predominantly Hindu majority, even loosely conceived, and its Hinduness, its Hindutva, is what has held it together through the centuries. Hindus constitute the majority, they would say, groups like the Vishwa Hindu Parishad, and they are determined to right the wrongs of centuries and for Hinduism to take its place in a nation that has given all sorts of rights to minorities and privileges and concessions to minorities. And this, of course, is exactly the kind of thing that freedom fighters like Gandhi and the Muslim leader Abul Kalam Azad sought so deeply to avoid. Muslim minorities in their imagined communities, fearing that India was becoming a Hindu country, and Hindu people accusing the government of minorityism in protecting Muslim rights. Second, there is the view of India as a multi-religious nation. Yes, it may have ideological roots in Hindus, Hinduism, but it is more cultural than ideological. In 2008, Prime Minister Manmohan Singh spoke to a conference addressing non-resident Indians who come home to Mother India every January, uh, presenting a vision of India that is part of this dominant public discourse. He said, we speak different languages, practice different religions, our cuisine is varied, so is our culture. We're over a billion Indians, yet there is a unifying idea that binds us all together, the idea of Indianness. We are committed to strengthening the sinews of our plural, multicultural, multi-religious, and multi-ethnic democracy. It's possible that this view of Indianness is what we might refer to as Indian civil religion, based on an old and common civilization of diverse cultures, religious traditions, peoples, and languages, a theme long-sounded, but alas, yet fully to be realized. Now, let me conclude with just one quotation from a Muslim scholar in the European context who talks about the challenges ahead. That's Tariq Ramadan, who a couple of years ago in the summer wrote an important article called Manifesto for a New We. More broadly, his thoughts are relevant not just for Muslims, but for citizens of many faiths. He calls for a revolution of trust among Muslims and between Muslims and their fellow citizens. Citizens of the Muslim faith, he says, must contribute to a reformulation of the political questions of our day. 
Our societies, and I'm still quoting here, are awaiting for the emergence of a new we, a we that would bring together men and women, citizens of all religions, those without religion, who would undertake together to resolve the contradictions of their society, the right to work, to housing, to respect, against racism, all forms of discrimination, all offenses against human dignity. Such a we would henceforth represent this coming together of citizens, confident in their own values and yet defenders of pluralism in their common society, respectful of the identities of others. Citizens who seek to take up the challenge in the name of their shared values at the very heart of their societies. He goes on, the future of Western societies is now being played out at the local level. It is a matter of greatest urgency to set in motion the national movements of local initiatives in which women and men of different religious cultures and sensitivities can open up new horizons of mutual understanding and shared commitment, horizons of trust. And it's here that we begin to make the transition to tomorrow's lecture. All of these local initiatives, the cities and the towns of the new cosmopolis that have become our own workshops for developing this revolutionary trust and for forging at the local level a new we. Thank you very much, and I look forward to your questions. Okay, we've got uh, 10, 15 minutes for questions. There is a roving mic, um, so if you could put up your hand and indicate, we can have the, the mic brought to you. And while you're collecting your thoughts, uh, I will <laughs> take the chairman's prerogative and, and open with the first question, Thank you. If, if you don't mind. Um, the, the vision that you've given of, of diversity and pluralism and, and the efforts of states to, to maintain this, it, it, it struck me as, in a sense, a, a static one of, of, of communities that... Um, that weren't changing. And, and, and the point of religion is that it, it's almost part of religion is that it's going to proselytize. It's going to want to make converts. That if you really believe that, mm -hmm. that your faith is the true faith, then you want to convince others, share the good mm -hmm. news with them, the gospel mm -hmm. with them, to bring them in. But that creates tensions, um, and, and we see it particularly in Islamic societies. Mm -hmm. um, you know, if you've got a dominant religion that says conversion uh, shouldn't take place, mm -hmm. or uh, if, if the dominant religious faith is concerned about proselytism among minority faiths, or minority faiths are concerned about proselytism among the majority, uh, they, these would cause tensions, I would think, within in any effort to try to, to maintain the, this sort of pluralism that you were talking about. I just wondered if you wanted to comment they, on that. Certain, there certainly are tensions. I mean, let me say first about the, the issue of static. One of the things that is, that is really significant, I think, about pluralism is, as I said last night, everybody changes. We're not really going to be able to think about what it means to be French in the same way from now on, now that there are so many... French Muslims, uh, people wearing headscarves and doing lots of other things that we 
we French have not traditionally done. So it's not just a question of including everyone in the place that we've already created, but of that real uh, negotiation, I think we'd have to say, of what it will mean from now on, because the newcomers do have a voice and do have uh, sometimes a proselytizing voice as well. And we certainly see this in the United States where uh, there are a lot of converts to Islam, as it turns out, not just uh, African-Americans who have long converted, but new converts, um, uh, you know, men and women who are of Euro-American origin and who have discovered this through the dawah, through the preaching of Muslims. So, yeah, you're right. That does really create tension, and it creates tension both ways. I think of the difficulty these days in India, for example, that Christian communities have because there's a, a kind of backlash against mission and against a style of mission that has been seen as aggressive and proselytization and, and also denigrating of, of the culture of Hindus. And so there is a level of tension now in India around issues of proselytizing that is extremely uh, difficult. And yet, uh, one of the things we have to recognize is that there is in this uh, sort of covenants on religious freedom, not just the freedom to believe and to practice, but to attempt to, to convince others of your belief, if that is your belief. And that's a tough one. Yes, uh, uh, if you could wait for the, the roving, the, the microphone, it'll be mm -hmm. with the, just a minute. Yes. Just in the front row, then. Yeah. Uh, hi, thank you for your wonderful lecture. Uh, it's about the tension. I think the tension, there's a tension, and there's a phenomenon occurs called vandalism. 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 Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. And in your book, uh, New Religious America, you offer a lot of examples of vandalism. Mm -hmm. And I noticed that it's uh, about most of them, it's about more than 10 years ago. And I asked an uh, American friend, I, and he told me that, oh, it's a kind of, I don't know 10 years ago, but now it's the vandalism does not really happen in America. So I want to know what's the difference <laughs> from 10 years ago. Listen, if you had asked the same person 10 years ago, they would have said vandalism. We don't know anything about vandalism. Uh, partly, it's the, the issue of how it is we open our eyes to these things. Yes, indeed, um, the vandalism he's talking about are the many acts of violence, most of them fairly small, that only make local newspapers. And, uh, and they're small for everybody except the communities against whom they're perpetrated. And one of the things that we did in the Pluralism Project is basically we read local newspapers, uh, hundreds of them around the country, and begin to make a kind of patchwork of what it is that really is happening. So we would read about the destruction of Hindu images in Pittsburgh or the uh, vandalism against a Cambodian temple in Portland, Maine, or those sorts of things, or against black churches or synagogues. It still happens. And I think the documentation of it is increasingly important. Uh, and it is done by various groups, by the Council on American-Islamic Relations that publishes a report every year on sort of how it's going for Muslims in America, by the Anti-Defamation League that keeps specially track of uh, Jewish communities, and increasingly by the Hindu American Foundation and others. So 
we can't say that hate crimes and vandalism and violence have uh, fallen, uh, you know, fallen away during the years that since I published that book in 2001. And I think if we're to look at it particularly in relation to Muslims and Sikhs, they have actually increased to some extent. But it, it's certainly not, uh, not true that, that everything is fine now. Uh, it was bad back in the 90s, but it's, but it's much better now. I don't, that's not the case. But it is the case that we don't usually read about all of this if you only read the New York Times or your local paper every day. And that's why we have our own news service. Uh, yes, Thank Can you I for that question. Did you second have a question? Follow up? Yes. Ask a second question. Yes. Uh, yes, uh, I think you, uh, you have mentioned uh, that and no matter in, uh, in America, no matter uh, some, uh, for them, Islam or some other religions and with, with Christianity and can work together and for the peace, tranquility, and the common democracy. And I think uh, there's a lot of uh, doctrines of other religion is uh, against the principles of democracy. And uh, of course, uh, the real religious people refuse to change their democracy, uh, no, refuse to change their, their doctrine and to democracy. And so, so how the different religions work together for the common democracy? Oh, you have mentioned the general God. It sounds like the, the justice mentioned by John Ross is uh, mm -hmm. my, yeah. <laughs> Well, let me, let me say, I, I'm not sure that I can understand exactly the, the, everything that's implied in your question, but there is a sense among some people that, well, Islam isn't really great for a democracy because uh, Sharia and Islamic law cannot necessarily be blended into the, into the law of the land. And uh, the acceptance of living in a state that is not ruled as a Muslim state. Now, I mean, that's kind of a stereotype. There may be some Muslims who think that. But in the United States, there's a very uh, strong sense that the US, because it permits the flourishing of Islam and Islamic practice by virtue of freedom of religion, is what they call Dar al-Islam. It is a land that is hospitable to the flourishing of Islam. It is not Dar al-Arb, a, a land that one, where one has to struggle for that. And so, you know, there's a really strong sense that, that Islam and democracy go together and that uh, that is exactly the kind of sense that the thinkers I was trying to underline from uh, Indonesia have also developed. Um, the issue in the U.S. and in any covenantal society is that there are covenants of citizenship and to become a citizen you have to, you don't have to leave behind your religion or your, uh, your culture, your dress or your language, but you do have to enter into that covenant of citizenship, which involves uh, sort of basic issues of participation and voting and upholding the laws of the land. Yes, um, just... Thanks very much for a really stimulating lecture. I had a bit of concern kind of growing in me towards the end, particularly when you were talking about India near the end, but to a lesser extent 
about, about America, and that is that the, the new we that, mm -hmm. that you spoke a great deal about might be about the assertion of a, a state-based political uniform identity mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. while allowing a, a religiously diverse a religiously diverse situation under it mm -hmm. um, and that, that when we've, we've moved beyond the kind of reformed notion that uh, early reformation notion that religious and political identity would be the same thing mm -hmm. um, is, could what's happening in India and, and America and maybe elsewhere be about the assertion of the superiority of a, a state-based political form of identity as against a religious form of identity, which might be a wee bit worrying. I would be worried about that too, actually. I think one of the things that, that most of us realize when we start unpacking our own identities and societies is how plural they, they really are, that people don't have simply a religious identity, but also have an identity in relation to their profession, relation to their region and culture. Certainly in India, uh, that is the case. And so uh, the thing that would concern me more is kind of the constriction of identity, that I have one identity that is the sort of master identity controlled only by uh, who I am religiously or who I am as a citizen or who I am as an atheist or something, the kind of fundamental uh, identity that begins to strip away our uh, multivocality, which is part of what makes us human, that we, that we have this. I, I think what we need to think about, and it's what I'm thinking about, and I have some fairly half-baked thoughts about this at the moment, is how in these very diverse societies we, have, we develop a kind of common ethos that enables us to live together. I mean, a lot of it is based on laws, but a lot of it is not laws. It is a, a sort of ethic, you might say, that in the United States basically grows out of an Anglo-Protestant um, heritage that, that produced the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution, but did not enshrine Christianity. And, in, and therefore can really provide the basis for, uh, though it grows from that heritage, for wider participation of people of other faiths and of no faith at all. And hopefully, though that ethos in India does grow out of sort of the rich soil of a, of a pluralistic religious con context, that it does not become simply Hinduism, that it becomes something that is broader, a kind of civil Hinduism or civil Indic religion that can support a, a, a religious life, a public life that is very diverse. Because you, I mean, both, the thing that's interesting about both in the U.S. and India is that we are, you don't, there's no way that you kind of eliminate religion from public life because they're both enormously, richly religious cultures. And so somehow the, the ways of being religious in the public sphere need to, be, need to reflect that rich diversity. 
Thank you. Uh, yes, just behind the left. Yes, I appreciate the, 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 your last remarks on, on the point of, of getting some sort of common a glue that say, everybody could co co be cohesive round. What, what I'm disappointed in your lecture so far is the, the, the absence of politics, because this is an intensely political subject, yes. and it's an intensely political matter, especially in the States. I've been reading a book called Deer Hunting with Jesus by Joe Beaton, which is about, the, it's really a very sympathetic the account of, of the, the redneck element, so the, the, the poor white working class in the States, which is almost unrecognized now, which 80% which of whom previously voted for the Republicans for, for religious reasons, anti-gay, um, they, they, they were um, 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 for, for hunting, for gun law, gun law and, and these things. And it, it was the way that that's been colonized to the extent that American Christianity becomes a, a, a particular strain, almost a, 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 a mutation of Christianity. And that reflects a, a long division between the social gospel, uh, which was, was Christianity at, at working at grassroots to improve people's lives on earth, and, and fundamentalism, which came as a reaction to, a hostile reaction to the social gospel. Now, and one thinks that when one was reading some of the accounts of Sarah Palin, for instance, and who was backing her and what they were saying and, and wanting a war in the Middle East because that would precipitate the return of Jesus Christ. When you read all that, you begin to think you have in the States a massive problem of religions, and the religions are the problem. You Amen. <laughs> you, you're right. We, we do have a massive problem of religions. That is true. Uh, in, the, in the old days, they had 22 Gifford lectures, so you had a lot more time to do this. Uh, I only have six, you know. Uh, but I, I do think that you have hit something that's very, very important, which is it's not only that religion is um, vibrant in America, because it is, but it also has really crazy sides to it. I mean, it has a lot of tensions. I will not uh, concede American Christianity to the people you've called the rednecks and the, you know, the supporters of, uh, of uh, the gun lobby and, and all of these folks. Be, that's for real, and I do recognize it. But there is still the old social gospel, the grassroots, the liberal, the folks who are very, very active in uh, all sorts of major uh, issues. And, and then in between, there are all of the new evangelicals who are now beginning to discover a real social conscience in one sense. Not that they didn't really have it before, but they were primarily concerned with worship and praise. And now they're concerned with Darfur and a whole range of other issues. I think Christianity in the U.S. is enormously complex. And it also is global in the sense that we now have in the U.S., uh, Indian Christian communities from India and African Christian communities and a whole range of world Christianity that's now embedded in American cities. So it's not easy to characterize it in a word. And, uh, of course, you know, in my own work, I have to confess, I'm very interested in all the things you talk about politically and also because I'm very engaged in the church, the National Council of Churches, etc., um, but it's not my expertise. I'm, my expertise in this is to look at the range of other stuff that is happening 
and how that has impacted uh, the Christian and Jewish long dominant voices in American public life. But you've got some uh, very good observations there, to be sure. Yes, in the center there. Thanks. I'd like to ask a question about uh, the relation of uh, freedom of inquiry to uh, respect in the kind of pluralist uh, setup that, you, that you've mentioned. Um, in the West, historically, there was uh, a long tradition of being free to criticize uh, beliefs and uh, texts, um, not least Christian ones. Yeah. Um, and in the, in the kind of pluralist environment, do you think there might be a tension between that freedom uh, and maintaining respectful relations with other religious traditions. Is there a possibility of attention there perhaps you'd like to comment? There sure is a possibility of attention there. I think, you know, we need to recognize that as our dialogue with people whom we relate to as neighbors and as sort of co-workers of other faiths, um, as that develops, it's not just about uh, hand-holding and, and developing a, a kind of friendly rapport. It's also about criticism and self-criticism and the ability of that kind of discourse to develop. Uh, it doesn't mean I simply criticize the things that I find really hopeless about the Hindu tradition, uh, because I find a lot of things hopeless about my own as well. But th there is that sense that, um, that, that we are constantly learning both about ourselves and others through criticism and self-criticism. And one of the things that one finds in looking at the emergence of pluralist-type thinkers who are really trying to think their way into a new world, whether they're Christian or Jewish or Muslim, uh, it, it really doesn't matter. The place they begin is the place you began. How, how do we think about the texts that so many people uh, take as literally having dropped from above? How do we think about them in the context in which we live today? Do they speak to us? How do we interpret them? They don't really come just uh, you know, with, uh, with voices, even the Quran. Muslim uh, uh, interpreters will say that. Uh, this book doesn't... You know, it comes between covers, but it doesn't come able to stand up and speak to us. We have to begin to do that. So I think the issue of interpretation of the things long held sacred and perhaps static in some ways is critical for all of us. Yes, I think we've got a question here. Um, this is, in a sense, a follow-on from the gentleman who's yes. sitting in front of me. Um, I was wanting to ask very much the same question, but my emphasis is different. Um, could, do you research things like the Christian identity movement, Nation of Islam, um, the Covenant, the Sword, and the Arm of the Lord, all these different um, ethnic-based mm -hmm. religions where the ethnicity or the color or the race comes first, and then the uh, Christianity or Islam is tacked on afterwards. Mm -hmm. Christian identity is hard to avoid. I mean, I grew up in Montana, and 
It's very, wi very wide in the American West. So we do, actually we don't, there are lots of researchers who work on Christian identity movements. And the places where some of those movements that uh, are sort of pre-millennial looking toward the apocalypse, etc., and take especially aim at Islam, like uh, Pastor Hagee's uh, major mission out of Texas, uh, that is a kind of Christian Zionism, we certainly look at because it has deep effects on Christian-Muslim relations and Christian-Muslim-Jewish relations, really. Um, those are very important to look at, and I, I can't say that I'm much of an expert on them, except that we do see that there is a lot of uh, very, um, very sort of futuristic and what many Christians would see as uh, anti-Christian uh, stuff going on in identity movements like Christian identity. As for the Nation of Islam, slightly different. I mean, it is America's homegrown Islam. It was for a while. It had a turn away from its uh, race-based thinking in 1975 with the death of Elijah Muhammad. And after that, uh, American, a lot of American black Muslim uh, centers, like our main, the main mosque in Boston, turned toward what they called the Sunni international form of Islam, and they put the American flag on their masthead rather than having a sense of there being a, a separate nation within America. And then with Louis Farrakhan, uh, he kind of came back and said, you know, Racism isn't over either in America or in Islam. I think we better just stick with uh, this separatist Islamic movement that really works on ourselves and on sort of self-empowerment as black Muslims. And that is still going on. It's much weaker than ever before, but um, it, you know, it still has a kind of commanding presence in some of the very poor neighborhoods of big cities. I think the question in the far back will have to be the last for, for this evening. If you could put your hand up, so. <laughs> Thank you, Professor. I, I would like to raise again this tension between pluralism and also the notion of politics, because I'm, I'm, not, I'm still struggling to grasp whether actually, in particular in Islam, is compatible to this democracy, which is to me, it's one of the mediator of which the pluralism is actually emerged and also coexisting. Because, maybe because of lack of my knowledge, but also the experience showing me, like, there's some point of, like, on the issue of uh, structure, for instance, when in Islam, believe in Khalifa Islamia, although I know there's a notion of istihaj, yeah, but the one that is being very, very present is about the idea of, you know, is you not having an argument because there's a in political movement you have the Shura Council. We we sit in in in, in many many politi um, Islamic political parties, also in Indonesia, and in Shura Council you cannot have debate because you just have to follow because that's where the the authority is, and in that sense it's not. Really, it's dependent on personality and also the wisdom of members of the Surah Council. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of uh, a danger to me when actually 
in democracy, you don't do that. You have it based on argumentation. You know, it's, there's a, a lot of space to to, to 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 maneuver, and also within the the notion of like, for instance, in Sharia law, the hudud law, and also the how women only half valid as a as a as a witness in the court. So a lot of things to me sounds like not compatible. But also it's a critics to my own religion. For instance, I notice when I witness a referent and a priest actually in the, on behalf of the name of God army killing Muslim in Ambon or Poso. Mm -hmm. So it's, to me, it's, this tension is real and I'm not sure what kind of politics and the mechanism actually, when actually difference is can be settled or at least acknowledged, you know. Such a hard question and I, you know, I realize that all sides of this are difficult. But for example, the Shura Council can make decisions by its consensus uh, within itself for Muslims. But the Shura Council, even in Indonesia, does not decide the law of the land for, uh, for all of Indonesia, because Indonesia has set itself up as a democratic republic. Um, so that's the tension. How do, we, how do we think about the relationship between uh, religious and sometimes absolutistic religious councils and points of view and the voting democracy in which citizens participate? What is the difference between our role as citizens and our role as people of faith? And it seems to me that one of the things that's quite interesting about Indonesia and, and other countries as well is that, that they have tried to make that distinction. Whether you can hold on to it is another question, but there are real uh, you know, sort of progressive thinkers in, in Indonesia who are thinking this through and have a very public voice in saying, this is not about creating an Islamic state. And for many, the idea of an Islamic state in this day and age is really anathema, not something that should come into being. But everywhere where there is a multi-religious democracy, politics is a problem. And it, you know, it is in some ways the problem. When you have especially a large majority, what do you do with the fears and concerns of the minority who are Christians in Indonesia or Muslims in America? or uh, Hindus in, in America and uh, Christians in India. What, I mean, we're all minorities somewhere and majorities somewhere else. How, how do you think about a multi-religious democracy in which those fears can be protected? And I think the only, I mean, I don't, I don't have the answers for this, but there are lots of people thinking about it, especially about issues of Islam and democracy. But I think the question of having a, a voting democratic uh, system in which majorities can actually claim uh, power. That's, that's what democracy is about. But then you also have to have some balancing court system in which minorities are protected. And somehow to come, and that court system can't simply be a religious court system. So somehow in that nexus of representative democracy and legal court systems, there has to be, uh, there has to be a balance that, that can achieve an equity. Otherwise, we will fall apart into uh, groups that, 
you know, you, you, that you can't really live with other minorities or majorities in a multi-religious uh, state or society. So those are the problems. Uh, I know that I haven't answered them for you tonight, but I hope you go home thinking about them a little bit. We'll take on something much easier tomorrow night, and that is the city. How do we think about our cities, our locales, uh, the local situation in this context? So thank you very much. This production is copyright, the University of Edinburgh. This production is copyright, the University of Edinburgh.